Hello and welcome back to Tea and Teachings. I am your host, Jess Tarunan, and today I have a very special episode. Why is it special? Because this episode is me in all my truth, in all my raw, vulnerable depths. This is me. So I'm going to share with you my story. Now, my plan for the podcast is, of course, to continue on with our amazing interviews with various influential people. I love that we're doing that. I'm super excited about all the people that we'll be bringing onto the podcast. But I also don't want my entire podcast to be in uh, interviews with other people. I have a message and that was the sole purpose of Tea and Teachings was to be able to come on here and share my teachings, share my experience uh, in life. And yes, I'm only 29, nearly 30, but um, I feel that I have some substance to share with people and particularly women. And I feel like from the outside looking in, People probably wonder, like, why is she doing this? Who is she to share this? Blah, blah, blah. So I wanted to do this episode to really put it out there. But my direction with the podcast is alongside the interviews to essentially create content from my book. Most people these days are pretty time poor and podcasts are stepping in. So I decided I would inject, cut the crap, my book into the podcast. So each episode, I will basically draw uh, a chapter or a section and I will read it as it is in the book and add to it what I have further learned since the book was published because I feel like I have changed and grown so much. So I just have so much to add and so much to share and I'm actually really excited about it. Until you know my background, it's hard to understand why I do what I do. So if you'd like to know my background, if you'd like to know how I got to where I am, who I am today, if you'd like to know Jess Tarunan from the inside out, then stay tuned. This is my story. Thank you again for tuning in. I would like to add a trigger warning on this episode. There is some triggering subjects containing sexual abuse, domestic violence, abandonment in childhood, medical procedures, uh, depression, mental health disorders. Uh, So if you feel that this may be triggering to you, then I would advise not listening on. If none of these things bother you and you're keen to know my story, then please listen on. Thank you for tuning in. Let's get right into it. On the surface, I probably look like the girl who's got it all. I'm a mother of two beautiful children. I'm a published author, international beauty queen, podcast host, self-love coach. Seems pretty perfect, huh? All of those things are absolutely true for my life, but not for lack of intense hardship and sheer hard work that shaped me, but no longer defines me. I'm going to take you back in time to when I was around 12 years old and tell you about how life treated me for the next 15 years or so from there. 
I think you'll look at my life very differently after that. Our lives are made up of a series of events that we either allow to build us or consume us. At one point in my life, I was definitely allowing my life to consume me, but I want to show you how I turned that around. When I was 12, I lived with my dad. My parents had separated when I was only a baby, and by this stage, both of them had remarried. My mum had given me the gift of a sister and a brother with my stepdad, and my stepmom and dad were expecting their first child together. As it happens in early adolescence, my mum and I didn't always see eye to eye, and with the choice available to live with my dad, I thought it was a good option to move out and see if the grass was indeed greener. It also meant that I would be close to my grandparents and the city that we lived in, in contrast to the seclusion of the mountains where I had grown up with my mum. With the support of all of those concerned, it was mutually agreed upon that dad and I could make it work. It was a very exciting time in my life and I was happily anticipating the birth of my sibling and I loved living with my dad. Although I traveled further to school each day, my dad and I got along really well and an added bonus was that my stepmom was only 16 years older than me. So she felt like an older sister and a mum figure. From the perspective of a 12 year old, life couldn't have been better. It's not uncommon for mixed families to have problems that not only affect their own lives, but that of the children who are always caught between their struggles. Before too long, the pressure increased for my dad to provide for three other people apart from himself. He began to face some psychological demons, which caused him to become quite unwell. It was a difficult time for everyone involved, and my family decided that I should move back home to be with mum to help dad reduce some of that stress. So as quickly as one Christmas comes and another is on the horizon, my short time of happiness and security sadly came to an end. By the time I moved back in with mum, I had turned 13. Yes, I was still very young, but the effects of serious mental health disorder had been clearly demonstrated to me and would for many years have dire consequences on me psychologically and emotionally. I'd been complaining of back pain for a few months, and my mum always put it down to typical teenage hormones. Eventually, the pain became so bad that I was waking in the night to ask for pain relief. Mum knew that it was serious at this point and took me to see the doctor. With one look at my spine, the doctor concluded that I had scoliosis, which is curvature of the spine, and ordered immediate investigation. The scans showed a bend in my lower spine on a 45 degree angle that had also started to twist. I was referred to a specialist and by the time they saw me a month later, my spine had moved another five degrees. It was decided that I needed to be operated on sooner rather than later and the doctor told us that should I opt out of having this procedure, I would be crippled before my 18th birthday at the rate that my spine was moving. The surgeon classed my impending spinal fusion as urgent and I was operated on only a week later where they entered through the side of my body, collapsing my left lung, removing part of my ribs and inserting a rod and six screws into my spine. 
Describing my surgery sounded more like an overhaul of a prime mover truck than the work performed on a delicate 13-year-old body. The recovery was horrendous. Given my collapsed lung, I awoke with surgical-induced pneumonia and had daily physiotherapy to monitor the recovery of my lungs alone. I had a chest drain to remove fluid from such lung, and although I could breathe well, deep breaths, coughs, and hiccups were excruciatingly painful. After two weeks, I was allowed to return home, but the recovery was far from over. I returned to school for half days a few weeks later, and within a month or so, I was back to school as normal. I wore a back brace, which was made of plastic. It sat just under my breasts and covered my entire torso. I was ordered to wear it 22 hours a day. I hated the bloody thing. It was hot and sweaty in summer and bulky and noticeable under my clothes. I couldn't carry a school bag, so I had a carry-on style suitcase that I used to lug around school, much to my horror, and I stuck out like a sore thumb. I was never overly popular to begin with, so drawing any unnecessary attention to myself was just plain painful and reinforced my alienation. At this point, I had missed a fair whack of the school year, and I didn't enjoy the attention I was receiving with the constant questioning around my strange new appearance, so I started to withdraw socially and gave up academically. Once a straight-A student, I was now receiving Cs in my best subjects and far worse in the rest. At the same time, my dad's mental misfortune was wrecking havoc at his home and eventually led to the breakdown of his marriage shortly before my younger sister was born. I was absolutely torn apart by the actions of my father. They seemed so out of character for the kind man that I knew and loved. I felt totally devoid of any way to help my father and his family. I longed for security, and certainty in my life was starting to slip away from me again. Looking back, it was at this point that anxiety, fear, self-doubt, and the warning signs of depression began to emerge and were becoming my own demons for years to come. Living back with my mum wasn't going too well for me either, as the two of us were fighting like cat and dog, and combined with the actions of my dad, I felt an overwhelming sense of being a burden on my family, and in turn, I began to feel unloved and unwanted. The bullying at school, along with the hurricane unfolding at home, inevitably led to my destruction. I became depressed and extremely anxious, and before long, I began to self-harm. The only person in the world that I really felt understood me was my stepdad. I had called him dad since I was four, and he played a very important father figure role in my life. We were very close, and I told him far more than I told anyone else. He kept my secrets safe, and he comforted me in a way that I needed by being the one stable person in my life. Fast forward two years to where I had just turned 15, and despite the love and concerns of my stepdad, I still self-harmed on a regular basis. It was like an escape for me, where I could put on a brave face and pretend everything was fine for my family and friends, and that I could go home and tear myself apart and inflict physical pain on my own body to escape the emotional pain that I didn't know how to handle. 
People told me how brave I was to have experienced such an ordeal at such a young age, and I would smile on the outside, but on the inside I was shriveled up and screaming. I never planned my death, but I thought about it frequently. Suicide was almost like a fantasy for me, not something I planned on executing, but the idealization of what it was was comforting to me. At this point, I didn't give a shit about anything. I was failing school. I was fighting with my mom worse than ever. I said incredibly hurtful things and sabotaged my friendships. I started drinking and smoking cigarettes. Within the blink of an eye, my once innocent self had dissolved into a teenage train wreck. My family realized that I was a mess and the fighting with my mum wasn't easing, so we all decided I would move in with my stepdad's brother and his family, who I considered my cousins. I did feel a sense of relief at the thought of a new school and a fresh start, and thankfully my grades did improve immensely, and I made beautiful new friendships and cleaned myself up a lot. Still, in this house, I never did feel a sense of belonging, and given that my family didn't want to take me back at that point in time, the sense of abandonment and loneliness accelerated. I developed obsessive-compulsive behaviours, which my family at the time thought was me being tidy. Nobody knew the pain I felt emotionally every single day. Looking back through the eye of an adult now, my heart breaks for how emotionally drained and alone in the world I was. I often reflect on my behaviours at that time with such sadness for the girl who was my 15-year-old self. One weekend, my aunt and uncle took my cousins and I away trail bike riding. We had been many times before and it was a nice escape and something I really enjoyed doing. I felt free. I was finally able to give my tormented mind a break from reality. On the last day of our holiday, my muscles were sore from riding the motorbike, and although I was dressed in all my gear, I decided not to ride. Come on, it's the last day, just do one lap of the grass track, were everyone's words to me in response to my announcing that I was going to read a book in the sun. I caved to peer pressure and jumped on my bike for the last ride of the weekend. I rode over to the grass track with my friend and watched him speed off ahead. As I looked up to take off a bit, my tyre slipped in a rut in the track and as the handlebars wobbled uncontrollably, I hit the tyres that separated the track and went over the front of the bike. I have various blank points in my memory from there, but I remember two men taking my helmet off and asking my name and where my family was. My next memory is that of me being driven back to my family in a ute, and then the following memories are few and far between, lying in the bike trailer, then in the car, nearly three hours away from where we were when I had the accident, then arriving at the hospital where I was rushed into resuscitation. I have very little memory from that point, but I am told that my family were given a grave diagnosis that I was bleeding profusely internally that needed further investigation to locate the source. Unfortunately, the surgical steel that was in my spine made it increasingly difficult for the doctors to observe my scans, as the rod and screws reflected light and made everything look white. 
Eventually, a doctor concluded that I had torn my pancreas, lacerated my liver, and had some damage to my spleen. So they performed emergency surgery, which saw me lose the tail end of my pancreas. Thankfully, my liver and spleen were both fine and neither needed medical attention as they were capable of healing themselves. The pancreas is responsible for the production of insulin, but it is apparently a very difficult organ to heal as it secretes a kind of juice. Unfortunately, I was one of the unlucky ones with such injury and I ended up with a terrible infection due to the slow and difficult healing process and was equipped with a very large, very ugly, very loud and very visible vacuum dressing for several weeks. During my stay in the hospital, I became more and more depressed. Progress was slow and I was dying to get back to a school that I had come to enjoy. I wanted to see my friends and feel some sort of normal again. I eventually went back to school, probably far earlier than I should have, out of sheer boredom and lack of social life. The recovery was long and intense, but I'm happy to say that apart from a mega scar on my stomach, I lived to tell the tale in a healthy fashion. Thankfully, by the time I went back to school, people were probably sick of hearing about it, so I didn't get too much extra attention except that I was unable to participate in anything particularly physical. By the end of the year, I was back to feeling relatively normal, but I still felt completely miserable. I desperately wanted to go home to regain a sense of belonging with my biological family, but my mum and stepdad didn't think any of us were ready for me to go back, despite all I had been through. Of course, my story is my perception, and I have come to realise that they had their own reasons for feeling it best that I stay with my stepdad's family. However, I decided to be sneaky and ask to stay with my mum for the entire Christmas school holidays to prove to them that I was worthy of my place back in the family. I was resolute that I would never go back to my aunt and uncle's place. Being at home was the most important thing for me in my mind. However, one day during the holidays, my mum and I had a fight in a public place and when we got in the car, she very quietly drove. She turned down a street that wasn't ours and stopped out the front of my best friend's house. I remember her voice was unusually calm as she said, get out. That was the last time I seen my mum for four months. Nothing made sense and my head was in a whirl. My perfect plan had been sabotaged and I couldn't understand why. I moved in with my paternal grandmother and enrolled myself at a local school. I liked being with my grandma, and she didn't like to argue, so I got away with a lot. One night, while I was loitering around the local shopping centre during extended trading hours, I met a boy. He was nice to look at, and he made me laugh, and I couldn't believe that he was actually interested in me. The years of losing myself in parent and carer swapping had indeed taken its toll on my self-esteem. It didn't take long for me to fall head over heels for him, and before I knew it, he was my boyfriend. Eventually I went home to my mum, but it never really felt the same ever again. Months of not speaking to her had put a wedge between us so much that not long after I turned 16, I moved in with my boyfriend's family. I was working as an apprentice hairdresser at the time, and now that I had my own money and made my own rules, I felt independent. 
I saved for a car and his mum taught me to drive. I absolutely loved his family. His parents were still married and he had siblings. They all ate dinner together and they were funny and kind. His mum treated me like another daughter and I established a relationship with her that I craved so intensely from my own mum. However, as I've learned more than once in my life, not all that glitters is gold. The imperfections of what had become my perfect world began to unravel before me. My boyfriend started to dabble in recreational drugs. I have always been a bit against them, so it put strain on our relationship and caused us to fight a lot. Our arguments started to intensify and he began to push me around while we fought. It wasn't long before he was quite aggressively abusing me. Fear of going backwards and returning to my family and the roller coaster of abandonment I had come to feel every time I returned home caused me to ignore the danger I was in and I chose to stay with my boyfriend. After all, his mum loved me and in my naivety, I thought she would never let him hurt me. The thing is, she couldn't possibly protect me when she had absolutely no idea what her son was doing to me. He was meticulous about hurting me. He hit me in inconspicuous areas so the bruises were well hidden and no one would ask questions. He flat out denied everything if I mentioned the abuse in conversation with him and he was forceful and aggressive in the bedroom. It took me a long time to realize that I was being abused and by the time I did, I was significantly traumatized. His involvement with party drugs became worse and worse until he punched his sister in the face in the kitchen of their house in front of everyone. This obviously drew a lot of attention to me and began his family asking a lot of questions. The last straw for me was when he pinned me against the wall by my throat in front of his entire family, which resulted in a big family fight and him speeding off in his car. From here, I realized that my life was in danger, but like many women in my situation before me, I feared that I had nowhere to go. One night, I was out with some girlfriends when one of them asked if we minded that her brother come and hang out with us for a while as he had just moved out of home. None of us had a problem with it and I was introduced to Joel. Joel sat with me all night while the others danced and we just talked and talked for hours. I felt that I could instantly trust this man and I spilled the beans and told him everything about what was happening with my boyfriend. I had never told anyone, not even my best friends, who were 20 metres away. They had no idea what was going on in my life. Joel was worried and told me I needed to leave. For the first time in a long time, it felt like someone actually cared about what was happening to me and wanted to help me get out. Joel gave me the courage to see the reality of my situation and within a few days of meeting him, I packed up my belongings and left my boyfriend. The only problem was that during the time I was living with him, my mum and stepdad had separated. I decided that going to live with my mum was not in the best interests of either of us due to our turbulent history, so I went and stayed with my stepdad. We both got along so well, and even though I didn't tell him why I had left my boyfriend, he knew that that boy had been bad news for me from the start. Within a couple of months, I had been spending a lot of time with Joel. 
I felt apprehensive about commencing a new relationship with anyone at this stage, partly because I wasn't sure I was going to fully recover from what I had just been through, and partly because he was my friend's brother. Once Joel and I had established that we had feelings for each other, I decided I needed to talk to his sister. I took her out for lunch and told her that I had feelings for her brother. She asked if his feelings were reciprocated, to which I nervously answered yes. To my complete surprise, she was so happy. She was more than encouraging, and we agreed that if things went sour between Joel and I, that we wouldn't allow it to tarnish our friendship. The relationship between Joel and I moved fairly quickly, and within three months I was moving in with him. Another three months went by and he asked me to marry him, to which I said yes without hesitation. Joel was beyond kind to me, and the exact opposite of my ex-boyfriend. He was gentle with his words and his hands, and respected me and my decisions to no end. He wanted the best for me, and he wanted me to be happy. We were married a year later, in a beautiful rural setting with 100 guests. However, happy endings can sometimes be bittersweet, And while Joel and I were blissfully in love in our honeymoon period of marriage, I had several falling outs with my stepdad. And after only a few months, he was in a relationship with a woman who wanted nothing to do with me. He inevitably decided to walk out of my life. I didn't cope well with this at all. It brought up all those old feelings of abandonment. And I just couldn't bear to think that the one parent that I thought would never leave my side no longer wanted me in his life. Around this time, I also discovered that Joel and I were expecting our first child. And although I was ecstatic about the impending addition, I was deeply hurt at the thought that my dad didn't want to be a part of my life or the joy of becoming a grandparent. My emotional pain was deep and hard to put into words. Although I had so much to be grateful for, with Joel in my life and a little baby on the way, I couldn't get over the terrible loss I was living through. I went to psychology to try to get through the hard feelings, and my therapist told me that I was grieving in the most painful way possible, mourning the death of someone who is very much alive. On our first wedding anniversary, we welcomed our first beautiful baby boy, Oliver, into the world. He was everything we wanted and more, blonde hair and big blue eyes, the most beautiful smile and personality to boot. He was perfect. I was so happy and all my troubles seemed to melt away. However, when Oliver was around six months old, a terrible bout of depression hit me like a brick wall. It came from nowhere and absolutely rocked my world. I felt emotional pain like never before. All of the depressive episodes I had ever experienced, there were none quite like this. The road to recovery was long and intense. We tried many different types of therapy and medication and eventually found a combination that worked. It wasn't long until we were talking about another child following my recovery. And so began our quest for baby number two. Oliver's conception had taken some time, so we started earlier than we idealised to give it some time to conceive. Much to our surprise, this baby was conceived in our first month of trying. We found out that we were expecting another baby boy, and I was so happy. 
My family felt complete and I believed that the past could surely now be put to rest and my happily ever after could have truly arrived. Archer was born five weeks early after a complicated pregnancy and a spontaneous early labour. He was a perfect little fighter and only required medical attention for 24 hours. Again, my life felt pretty perfect in every way and I couldn't have been happier. I soon learned that life is all about ups and downs when my perfect world came crashing down with a thud when Archer was seven months old and that crazy depression kicked in again and knocked me off my feet. This time I was hospitalized for five days. Being away from my husband and children was so hard, but I was in such a bad place mentally and psychologically that there was no other option. I was kept on suicide watch and given medication and referred to a psychologist for management. My life felt like a mess. Here I was in a time that should have been perfect and I didn't even want to be a part of it. I felt broken and abandoned by my family. I couldn't stop thinking about how my mum barely even liked me. My dad was unsupportive. My stepdad had walked out on me and I hadn't seen much of my stepmom as she was me remarried now too. I felt like my world had crashed in on me and I struggled to see any light in my tunnel at all. In fact, there was no tunnel. It was just me and the perilous darkness of depression that had come to define me. I did get through it. The recovery was long and painful, with several regular bouts of depression in between. I began to understand and know all too well the struggles of not only myself, but what others go through when managing mental illness. Like most of the setbacks in my life, I continued to fight and tried my best to get through it. As I look back, this was an important theme in my life and a strength that I can look back on to always give me hope. I was always a fighter, and even though at times all I wanted to do was give up, I always seemed to find it in me to pick myself up and strive ahead. Three years later, I was doing fairly well mentally, with no serious bouts of depression for months. Our Oliver had been having behavioural issues for some time, and after lots of assessing and therapy, he was diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder and sensory processing disorder. I felt that in a way I had let him down and his therapy was costing us all the extra money we had. For the first time in a long time, I started to feel down again and I started to recognize a few of the old signs of feeling depressed. Therapy had taught me that I need to look after me as much as my family and it was at this time I realized I had nothing to keep my mind active so I began to search for a hobby. I had tried various things over the years, but none had kept me focused for long. I realized that to be truly on the road to recovery, I needed a project, something I could do to benefit my life as well as others. It had to, had to be something that would give me focus and purpose. Joel had been pushing me for a long time to engage in something that I enjoyed, and we decided together that I should open a hairdressing salon. I felt so proud and overwhelmed with joy and absolutely loved setting up my little salon. I ran the salon with one staff member and I began to feel after a while that it was consuming too much of my time and I was not reaping adequate financial reward from it as I had trouble charging my worth. 
It was consuming so much of me that I couldn't keep up with the housework at home and I felt so disconnected from my husband and children. After much deliberation, I decided that in my own best interests, I needed to close my business and focus on my family and home life. However, it wasn't long before I found myself once again looking for a hobby. I stumbled across someone's Instagram page who was an Australian Mrs. title holder in a pageant. My eyes lit up. I didn't even know that Mrs. Divisions existed in pageants. I didn't know anything about pageants. I had never modelled before or even imagined that I could. But after doing some research, I found a system where applications were open and I applied. I didn't think I would get in, so I didn't tell anyone. To my surprise, in less than 24 hours, I was accepted. I couldn't believe it. With Joel's support and encouragement, I embarked on an amazing journey where self-doubt was so totally changed and the idea of self-belief was born. The pageant was to be held in eight weeks' time, so I had a lot of preparing to do before then. I was reading a book called Mastering Your Mean Girl by Melissa Ambrosini, which I highly recommend if you haven't read it already, and I truly believe that that book changed my life. It changed my mindset, and the activities in it gave me this newfound passion and love for self-development. I began to become obsessed with working on myself, and before I knew it, I was in an amazing mindset with depression trailing behind me nowhere to be seen. I trained hard for the pageant. I ate well, I exercised, I trained in my pageant walk and for interview, I did photo shoots, and I continued my self-development journey. In the November, I walked to the stage, and to my absolute shock, I won the title of Mrs. Australia Continents 2018. In June, I would head to Las Vegas to represent Australia on the international stage. Entering into the pageant meant I worked on my appearance physically, I worked on my wardrobe, and it was no surprise that when I looked in the mirror, I was starting to recognize myself in a way that I had never had before. I was finally finding myself. This total turnaround and victory in my life came at a time when Joel and I had become restless with where we were living and knew that a total change of lifestyle was imminent and essential for our family to put the past behind us and make a fresh start. My self-development journey was just absolutely bursting. I attended a two-day workshop that shook me and made me realize a lot of home truths. During this workshop, I decided to take my love for self-development to a whole new level and I signed up to study life coaching, neuro-linguistic programming and how to be an influencer. June came quickly and I headed to Vegas with the intention to do my best and be humble in the process. All I wanted was to say I had been there and grace the stage with the best of the best. I had such a great time in the lead up to the pageant and made so many beautiful friends. The best part about pageantry was crossing paths with women whom you may never had met had it not been for the competition. Pageant day came around and I did my very best, executing everything I had worked on in my training for the last eight months. I had an amazing new mindset and was so proud to be standing on that stage. When I was announced as one of the last two women, my heart raced. It was a moment in time when everything just went into slow motion. 
I could see the lights shining all around me. I could hear Joel, my director, friends, even people I didn't know were cheering for me. I felt like I'd started in a valley and I was standing on top of a mountain. That would have been enough for me, but the best was yet to come. The girl standing opposite me was absolutely beautiful. She was so kind, everybody loved her. I remember standing here thinking to myself, oh my god, you've won first runner-up, how amazing is this? I began to well up in pride. When her name was called as first runner-up, I burst into tears. I could not believe that this was only the second time I had ever been on stage and I had just won an international title. They announced me as Mrs. Continents 2018 and I just could not contain my emotions. Then to put the cherry on top of a perfect day, two of my beautiful friends, who are also Australian, won the other two titles of Miss Continents and Miss Teen Continents. Fast forward a little bit to the year 2020. I feel like in the future, 2020 will be like Voldemort. It will be the year that must not be named. The day before my 29th birthday, Joel and I separated. I spent my entire birthday crying, feeling like my world was caving in around me. My future was uncertain. We were peaceful. We're still incredibly peaceful, nearly a year on. But the 11 years we spent together meant everything and more to me, especially given my past. Out of respect for Joel and our children, I will not share details of the separation. All I can say is that we agreed at that point to remain great friends and both of us have held true to that intensely. It took me around six weeks to find a rental in order for me to move out of our family home. When I finally found a place, it felt bittersweet. I was so enthusiastic about becoming independent for the first time in my life, but I was also incredibly anxious about being alone for the first time in my life. In typical style for my life, just as I was settling in and making peace with my new life as a single mum, COVID-19 stepped in. Two weeks after moving into my own place, I lost my job. The company I was working for panicked and stood down every staff member across 48 stores in the country. We were promised our jobs would remain available upon reopening of the store, but the process was drawn out and stressful as each pending day brought with it fear of running out of money, supplies and hope. After eight weeks of living below the poverty line and having no idea when my life may return to normal, I decided to start seeking new employment. As you can imagine, that was not an easy task during a global pandemic, but thankfully Queensland restrictions were far less intense than other states here in Australia and hair salons remained open and operating not too unlike the usual. We are now nearing the end of 2020, and upon reflection of the wild ride this year has been, I can easily say this year has certainly been challenging, but it has been a year of intense self-work. I have had to learn who I am all over again, as a woman, as a mother, as a businesswoman, as a spiritual being. My entire identity has been challenged. I actually said to a friend today that I feel as if I'm living as my alter ego. 
My fashion sense has changed dramatically. My sense of fun has appeared where once lay a very sensible personality. And my prudent filter has been thinned. And I am now not only open, but also very intrigued by sex, sexuality and self-love across all formats, including masturbation. If you had told me 12 months ago that this is how my life would look today, I would have laughed and laughed and never believed it. My life is beginning again. So why did I write Cut the Crap? Why did I start Tea and Teachings? And why do I show up on Instagram the way I do? Because I wanted to help women become the best version of themselves. And although adversity might have jaded them, to feel empowered by embarking on forms of self-development that would help them reach their own mountaintop. I wanted women to experience what I had in the form of overcoming their own demons and embracing a more positive journey of self-development. And so I wrote the book and developed various other methods of empowering women, including workshops, retreats and coaching services. I do hope these platforms form the bridge they were intended for. I want to help you redefine yourself by seeing where you struggle and noticing things from a different perspective. It is designed to show you where dark spots in your life lie by giving you tools to recognize negative self-talk and behavioral patterns and will guide you in removing the blockages that you have created along the way to allow you to create your own amazing future just as I have. These methods are all tried and tested by me and come from a combination of both life experience and my skills and expertise as a coach and NLP practitioner. The book was written with love and good intentions, as are all of my posts and podcasts, to show you how to rise above the haters and the shit that life throws your way and come out bigger and better than ever before. From me to you, the best is yet to come, my dear. So that was an excerpt from Cut the Crap. That was my story. I definitely feel like this is a very different way of sharing my book content and I'm definitely not mad about it, but it is extremely foreign to me. So I apologize for any little mistakes and bits and pieces that were in there. But nevertheless, I hope you enjoyed hearing my story and I look forward to teaching you more about how I have overcome various situations in my life over the years. Um, But for now, thank you for tuning in. Please come back again next week. Again, I am your host, Jess Tarunan. You can follow me there on Instagram at Jess Tarunan. I'll link it below because I know my last name is hard to spell. Thank you so much and have a lovely week. Thank you.